Hello, and welcome to The Camera Report, brought to you by waterfootfilms.com. I'm your host, Sean Malone, and in this episode, we're thrilled to bring you an interview with Academy Award-nominated cinematographer, Danny Cohen, BSC. Danny earned that nomination for his beautifully realized work on The King's Speech, which also brought him nominations for an ASC Award and his third BAFTA Award nomination. His other films include This Is England, Pirate Radio, and the groundbreaking HBO miniseries John Adams. Danny joins me today from London. Thank you so much, sir, for doing the show. Nice to speak to you. I wanted to start by asking you what attracted you to the King's speech. Were you familiar already with this story, uh, being English? No, I mean, I, I was aware of, obviously, the abdication and, you know, that, that sort of historical story. But the actual ins and outs of the process and why he abdicated, you know, the whole sort of intricate detail, I was, that, you know, it's like everything. You kind of know something about it, but not everything. I'd worked with Tom Hooper on a film called, called Longford, and also I did half of the HBO series called John Adams. And so Tom mentioned it, and I, he sent me the script. And what was interesting, you sort of read the script, and even my first reading of the script, it's, you know, it's a powerful story. And that kind of basically got me going. With British films, it's a kind of tiny budget. So I think Tom was busy finishing off John Adams or he was in America and it was one of the producers who I actually met he kind of took me through what Tom was trying to do I think it's actually the initial thing is the script because it was a choker you can never read it off the page it's, it's a good read I mean you never know how films will play out on screen because it's sort of getting from the page to the screen is always or often quite torturous just because of financing and actors' availability, you know, the whole sort of nuts and bolts of making a film, so you can have one notion when you read it, and I'm sure many, many cinematographers are completely surprised when actually see a film finished, because it's gone down any number of roads you never expected. But it felt like what he did was quite faithful to the script. Well, I read that you were trying to depart from the basic visual prescription of most historical dramas. And I wondered if there were any non-period films that you and Tom Hooper maybe viewed or drew from when you were creating your approach. I don't think it was any film specifically. I mean, we definitely, I think, what his take on it, and I think it, in a weird way it was an extension of what he did on John Adams, is he kind of never wanted to portray a historical era as a kind of neat, tidy, you know, everybody's dressed well and it looks more than it probably was. So I think he, what his notion was always that dirty people's houses are hung with wallpaper that's probably 10 years old. There's dirt on the floor. There's kind of, you know, more so John Adams because it was possibly, I don't know how you describe it, but two, 300 years ago is going to be rougher than 100 years ago. But it's that sense of everything's got a texture and a patina and, you know, as much as you can make film come alive to kind of give you a view of a historical, you know, point in history however many years ago. I think that helps push the story forward and make it a little bit more believable. This is a really intimate movie, and I'm surprised it still manages, despite the intimacy, 
it really gets across this kind of high dramatic stakes of like pre-World War II and what was going on in the world. Was there ever a temptation to try to go bigger in scale? And, and did you ever have to fight that temptation? I think it's simple economics. The budget was, I think, $15 million. I think you can only realistically achieve what you can achieve with the money. And, you know, because the, the producers are always going to come down you like a ton of bricks if you go crazy with epic sweeping vistas when you when the money isn't there it's as simple as that so what made sense and i think what works is to concentrate on you know the emotional sort of journey of the actors essentially it's it's two people talking a lot in confined spaces you know there are a few shots where we go go big but they're very few and far between it's and it's kind of using colin and jeffrey's you know, their faces as landscapes and just kind of as much as possible making it big in a small environment. Because, you know, it's a great story and essentially it's three or four people's journey. And, that, you know, I think that's in itself had a lot of power. We filmed the funeral of Michael Gambon, yeah, who plays the, the king who dies. And what was tricky there was Inevitably, we didn't have enough extras, we didn't have enough cars, enough horses and soldiers, you know, so so we shot it in quite uh, an oblique way. If you look at the archival footage of his funeral, it's a massive deal, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of people, it's all the kings and queens from across Europe, so it's a huge deal to, to then not be able to shoot it on the same scale, so you kind of go, go at it at a kind of a bleak angle, but it never kind of, I don't think it delivered, so I think that scene got deleted purely because it would have stood out as not being a fantastically resourced moment. So in, in a way, you kind of tell that part of the story in a, in a more intimate way, you know, when he dies in the bed surrounded by his family. You don't then have to go and show the funeral and the party after the funeral and, you know, all the rest of it, because you've got it, you've encapsulated it in a simple kind of intimate family moment and and realistically it's, it was only ever a small budget period English film so that restricts you to certain scale of locations and stuff like that. You talked about a lot of the movie just being two people talking and I want to talk real quickly about composition. There's a lot of shots in this film uh, as it's been pointed out before uh, in some of the interviews I read where you'll compose a character on, say, the right side of the frame and also have them looking and speaking screen right, cut to yeah. the other character, they're on the left side looking left. And it, besides, you know, discomfort, which I think is clear, can you talk about why this was done and, and maybe ways these visuals are resolved at the end of the film? Yeah, I, I think it's just part of Colin's first journey because he's obviously he's going through all the difficulties of overcoming um, his stammer and everything that goes with that. So it's an emotional and physical problem that he's constantly battling against. And I think it was just a simple idea that if you could make his shots or the shots part of that sequence, not difficult to watch, but just to, you know, give it a sense of unease, then that just adds to the actual story. So I think in a weird way, I mean, all the cinema, all you want to achieve in cinematography is help tell the story you know, add, add to the storytelling by composition and lighting. 
anything you can do that pushes that you know that journey then it's, it's going to help if it all wraps up together neatly with no kind of loose ends and nothing that jars then you kind of you've done your job because you push the story forward and hopefully nobody really notices that you're doing crazy framing or the lighting's hard when it could easily have been soft but it just if it puts that seed at the back of somebody's head that you know they might not instantly say oh that's off framing you know you're short siding him why are you short you know so technically it's kind of irrelevant but if, if it's emotionally part of the story then you know then that it kind of it's successful because it just tightens everything and i think that's what i think part of why the film caught the imagination is because it, you know simply put it's a guy struggling with something it's risky in the sense that you know the bulk of historical dramas are not formulaic but they, there's a pattern that works and possibly that's what we were reacting against slightly if it works and it's comfortable then I don't think you're going to tell as an emotional story if the story is about somebody who's in crisis. So if it can put it put a spotlight onto the pain that Colin Firth is going through, then, you know, it's really kind of up to the ante. While we're on composition, uh, I understand Roger Deakins' work has been an influence on you. And I'd like, yeah, to, sure. I'd like to read a, a quotation from Mr. Deakins that I read. It says, uh, Composition is much more important than lighting. The balance of the frame, the way an actor is relating to the space in the frame, is the most important factor in helping the audience feel what the character is thinking. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think he's far more eloquent than me. But that's, <laughs> um, definitely, that sums up. The only thing I'd say is as important. Because, you know, how you light something is you know, or how he, he likes stuff, it's amazing. So I think he's he's doing himself a little disservice. I mean, I think they're all equal parts to the same whole. But it's definitely as much composition and, you know, where you put somebody in frame and the lens on the camera dictates where you put them in the frame. So the choice of the lens, the choice of the composition, it's all, you know, essentially what, what we do, it's just about making choices because... There's no right way, there's no wrong way in anything to do with filmmaking. Because, you know, you can tell me, you can say one thing, and then I can pull up a film where they've done the absolute opposite. And you, there's, no, there's no judge and jury who says, right, you've, that, that's, that's wrong. You can't, you, it just doesn't make sense. You can't have wrong. You can, because it's all subjective. So you can't, you literally can't say anything is wrong and anything's right because that makes no sense. So all you can do is make choices. I mean, I think that's in a weird way. One of the things about shooting is that so much of it happens on the day. You can go into day's work with certain preconceived ideas of how you want to do things. But um, so much of it kind of, doesn't change radically. But, you know, the, in, in the UK, if you're shooting in the winter, which we did on the King's Speech, you're hugely at the kind of mercy of the weather. So that's got a factor that you can't predetermine. Is that um, ability to adjust or that necessity to adjust more prevalent on location than it, than it is in a studio? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the beauty of working in a studio, those are all the elements that you want to control and on a location you can't control. But then also you could turn it absolutely on its head. And if you don't shoot in a, if you do shoot in a studio, there you make a lot more choices 
before you shoot. If you shoot on location, you, you have to react to situations. But who's to say that a, a location film, you know, you, you can never compare the two, really, because they're just two different beasts and they produce different types of films. Are you more at home in a studio or on location? Well, I think, I think both. I think because in, in, you're always going to be reacting to the situation because you, you're always, however much prep you do on a film, there's always going to be something you don't factor in. You know, I did a film where one of the actors got stuck in a traffic jam. So they were then late. And then in, instead of starting shooting one way, you've got to rethink what you're going to do that day and then go forward to sort of encompass, you know, a random element like that. And there's, there's not a lot you can do about it. So you kind of, what you think you might do, you don't do. You know, and then working in a studio gives you huge, more, you know, massive amount of different choices. How difficult was your job from a lighting perspective on The King's Speech compared to other projects you've shot? I think all all the films that I work on, you, you're, you're presented with a different conundrum. King's Speech was shot through the winter. Inevitably, you've got shorter days, so you've got to be able to control the light far more. And because you were shooting on location, that gives you the problem of blacking stuff out. So you've then got complete control where it goes uh, from day to night or night to day and it, it, essentially then that became like a mini studio because as much as possible you were, weren't were being affected by what was going on outside. On Johnny English we, we had the sequence we shot in Hong Kong and you know, we'd, got, we'd gone to Hong Kong to get the views and uh, you know you could have green screened the whole thing uh, and I don't, there's no way you would have got the same atmosphere because just going to a location gives you a certain sense of, you know, feeling that, that you are there. On the King's Speech, we did an exterior sequence in Regent's Park with Jeffrey and Colin walking, and we put in a lot of smoke effects, and it looked amazing. In Hong Kong, we did a, a dawn a, a sequence where we started shooting early in the, in the day, and there's a lot of smog first thing in the morning in Hong Kong, so you couldn't actually see the views. So you kind of, on the one hand, for a period film in London with lots of smoke, it looked fantastic. In Hong Kong, when you want to see the view and there's smog and you can't see the view, you've got to think of, you've got to think of something else to do until you can see the view. So essentially it's the same thing. I know it's only been a year since the King's Speech really kind of hit, but I was wondering if you could tell me how it changed your life and your career. No, not massively, because, I mean, I, as soon as I came back from the States, I... I did another, I did a film about five years ago called This Is England with Shane Meadows. And then last year we shot a four-part Channel 4 series. And literally as soon as I got back from the States this year, we did another series. So, you know, and that's all shot in Sheffield, all on location. You know, so it doesn't change massively because you kind of, you're still doing, hopefully I'm still doing the sort of work that I like doing. you still got to kind of get on and, do interesting stuff and as you go to the states and you know you're at the oscars and stuff and you meet lots of interesting people and you realize everybody's up to something that's interesting so you kind of just want to push yourself a little bit further your next movie as you mentioned is johnny english reborn i for one am looking great forward to it i'm assuming you immersed yourself in bond and spy films during pre-production yeah a bit basically my my logic about taking johnny english was I kind of think it'd be, 
you know, I don't think I'll ever get asked to do a Bond film. And <laughs> it's the closest I thought, well, you know, it's a fantastic opportunity. And I think we, we definitely delivered it. There was a car, I went to a casting crew screening yesterday. So that's now, yeah, like a year after we shot it. And I think it's, there's some great bits in it. And it's a really tight film. And it's exactly that. It's, a Bond, it's like a, a Bond film, but much funnier. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, some, uh, some yeah. of the Bond films are funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they are. But, I, you know, I think, I think what's... I, it's just a lot. There's some great, great, great jokes in Johnny English that kind of sure. really... Um, I don't think you get Daniel Craig doing what, what Rowan did. So. Yeah, he seems like a pretty serious guy. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, so it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun to shoot, and it, um, I think it definitely delivers. It's, it's already been released in like, Asia and Australia, so it's doing very well. So. What's different about the look of Johnny English Reborn compared to your other films? Did you have to go any glossier or kind of slicker with, with the approach? Yeah, I mean, a bit. I think they what Ollie, the director, was after was a Bond look. But I think what we tried to do is be quite free with not getting too locked into slick stuff, but kind of having it, giving it a sort of polish that doesn't make it feel like, um, you know, um, I think it's just making it look, look, look more than it is. I think that's what always, you know, so there's some fancy camera moves, there's some, there's a great wheelchair chase that's just, it's, I think what, it's trying to get the sort of thriller aspect of it and the comedy, which just it's really it's always it's like combining two things that shouldn't be combined, <laughs> and I think it works really well because there's you know there's always the I think Rowan plays this kind of it is it's semi-serious and he plays it very straight but there are some really sort of fantastically silly things that happen and so I think that from that angle where it's a spy thriller type movie where what should happen doesn't happen and what shouldn't happen does happen and I think that's you know, it's like it is a kind of genre-busting thing because it it's not. I mean, I think they had a bit of fun titling it Johnny English Reborn, so kind of taking the piss out of the Born film slightly. You know, I think it it does work really well. It's kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek, and just being able to kind of put that on the screen was lots of fun. Any particular sequence that was just a ton of fun to shoot? Yeah, no, I mean, the stuff in Hong Kong we do. There's a great chase in Hong Kong across the rooftops of some some buildings and then one guy does a kind of leap from one building to another and that that was I mean it was a lot of fun to try and work out how to do it because essentially he did do it for real so he jumps across I can maybe a 15 foot gap between two buildings and it was it was working out how just the logistics of how you do it and do it safely because he's you know he's 30 stories up in the air stuff like that is you know it, it was exciting and there, I mean, there are a lot of good chases Something I hadn't really done a huge amount of, so that was really exciting. Definitely a change from the King's Speech. Yeah, completely. When they offered me the job, I, you know, I thought these guys are completely crazy because if they're going on what I'd just done, which is a <laughs> historical drama where lots of people talk intimately, you couldn't get further from that to Johnny English. Well, Danny, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to this and letting me ask so many questions about uh, one of my favorite films, The King's Speech. I also uh, like to mention real quick, if anybody's interested in Danny's work, they can visit uh, 
www.b, as in boy, .co.uk, and there you'll find a sampling of some of Danny's stills. And on the second line of stills, there's a little movie camera icon. If you click on there, you'll see uh, a link to Danny's cinematography website. The King's Speech is now available in various formats, including DVD and Blu-ray, and Danny's latest film, Johnny English Reborn. It's hitting theaters in the UK October 7th, and in the United States October 28th. Danny, thanks again. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, no, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Our thanks again to Danny Cohen, BSC. And our thanks to you for downloading this episode of The Camera Report, produced by Brad Malone and Sean Malone. For more episodes of The Camera Report, please visit waterfootfilms.com and then click on the podcast link. Subscribing is easy and free. Also, search for Waterfoot Films on Facebook and then like us if you want to see updates about the show. I'm Sean Malone. Thanks for listening.